Hey, hey, whoa. The foot's still holding out. It's still okay. Oh, anyway. All right, how was lunch, everyone? Good, good. That's great. I didn't totally finish mine, so leave it there. Don't clear it out, okay, guys? Okay. Because <clears throat> I love it. Um, all right, well, this has been super fun, and I... Um, I'm going to, actually there was something, it's, it's fun having conversations with people because um, it reminds me of things that I didn't say that I wanted to say and I'm hoping that you all are asking amazing questions via your texting because I want to cover these things. Um, but one thing that I did want to say because I had a couple questions in the break about the whole like um, asking and responding and stuff like that and you know, what does that look like and how should that, you know, should guys really be asking? And um, so I want to say just one thing for the guys, a great tip, and, and you ladies can, can help me out on this. Um, I think that there, and it's not that guys always have to ask or guys always have to pay, but I think that you are doing yourself a service if you do that. Because um, I, I think men, my, my friend Carolyn McCulley has a great quote. She says, men trust God by risking and women trust God by waiting. And what's happened is we've reversed roles so that men are sitting back and then women are taking the initiative and everyone's frustrated. And so um, there, is, there is value and there is biblical um, honor in taking a risk. And for guys who step out in your sphere and you put your cards on the table, you ask a woman out and you give her the response in sa- you give her the opportunity in safety to respond to you, you are doing her a service as a sister in Christ. You are also doing yourself a service because you, by being bold and by doing that, are setting yourself apart from about 85% of the guys that are out there who are not doing this at all. So ladies, can I hear that? Yeah, okay, amen. Now, let me tell you an extra little tip. So this includes like pain. Let me give you an example about pain um, for dinner or whatever. When that check comes, guys, you you grab that check like your life depended on it. You don't let it sit there. You don't let her wonder if she should take her purse out and act like she might pay for it or take half. You just grab that check and you're like, bam, I got this because I'm the man and I'm gonna do this, okay? All right. Here's how, if, if you are going out, like say you're going out with a few people after, after your small group or whatever, and you're the only guy and you have this girl that you're kind of interested in, but she has a couple of her friends with her and you decide that you're going to stop at Starbucks, you get all their drinks or you get all, you go out to dinner, you get all their meals. You have just started your own personal PR campaign. Okay. Cause that, that is straight up, that is straight up hot. Okay. Um, and I don't, you can be the geekiest, dorkiest guy ever, and you do something like that that is honoring the women in your sphere and showing that you are protective and caring of them as sisters in Christ, you will do yourself a service. Okay, that was just a little aside. Bonus material. Um, but we can even talk about that a little bit more uh, coming up later. Okay, this afternoon, there are a couple talks I want to do. Um, whoa, what is my time here? Okay, this is going to be tricky. It's already almost one o'clock. I'm supposed to be done with this talk in four minutes. What are we doing? (laughs) Help me out here, Jason. Um, Okay, well, I'm just going to go for it, and we're going to see how this plays out. We will... Okay. 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 We're just going to be here. Do not eat your entire lunch, because you're going to have it for dinner, too, you guys. (laughs) 
pace yourself, pace yourself. Um, okay. So, um, oh yeah, I forgot. I don't have, I don't have slides for this talk. Okay, so this is going to be interesting because I wanted to talk part of the day on dating because I think that that's assumptive and we need to do that. Um, but I also wanted to spend some time uh, just on, on singleness and being single and how to rock out uh, living, living the single life. So um, I, have, I wanted to share um, really what I call trusting God with an unexpected story because I, I shared very little of my story with you so far. Um, you know, you heard some of it, but... Um, the first thing that I want you to do before I get started here, and I'm going to have to find a way to blaze through this, um, I want you to all at your tables on a piece of paper, write down four disappointments in your life right now. Um, I know, sorry about that. Uh, downer after lunch. Um, four disappointments or variables in your life right now. So things, um, things that are not going well or things that you have no control over in your life right now. So write down four things. I'm not going to give you a ton of time. Most of you, these are top of mind. <laughs> Let's be honest. Four things that you wish were different in your life right now that you don't have control over, that aren't going well, um, or that are just, quite frankly, up in the air. You just don't know. Okay, write those down and tuck them away. Okay, I, I told you guys that I'm the youngest of six children. Um, I like to think I was the favorite. I'm pretty sure I was. Um, but I grew up in kind of a um, middle-class family, though, quite frankly, my dad was a pastor, so let's be honest, lower middle class um, <laughs> back, back in the 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, it was, I was, my parents had been missionaries in the Philippines, and then my dad was a pastor, and I grew up kind of in the Christian bubble and all that. But I somehow got this idea in my head that I was going to be an achiever. I was going to be an overachiever. I did well in school, got good grades. And then in sixth grade, I decided I was going to go to Yale. I don't even know why I picked Yale, but I was determined to go to Yale. And for really six years, I determined to do that. And got to the point, my senior year of, of high school, where I applied and made it through the process all the way through the interview. Um, but then they circled back with me and they're like, so anyway, on the SATs, you really killed it on English, on the verbal, but the math was just kind of so-so for us. So do you want to retake it? And I'm like, yeah, I want to retake it. Not that I knew I would do much better, but you know, whatever. Um, liberal arts degree. But... Um, but it turned out that the, um, the one date that they gave me to retake it was my brother's wedding. And so I knew I should be there, you know, looking back, maybe I would do it differently. We'll see. Anyway, um, I knew I should be there. And so I did. And long story short, Yale went by with all its opportunity. And I was pretty frustrated by that because I put all my eggs in that basket and was, was super like, oh, you know, tailspin, whatever. Um, so instead I went to a Christian university in Chicago uh, which was good. Um, it ended up being a great experience for me. Did well there. Um, and that's really where I started, just through a weird series of events, doing some of my writing and some of my public speaking, never thinking that that would be part of my story. Um, and I took a lot of risks, but it didn't set me on some course of awesomeness. You know, I, I mentioned that in my 20s, I was like floundering. I did a, a fair share of um, temping, uh, then I would get involved in a super great project, or I, I was on Capitol Hill for a while, that was great. Um, then I would go back to like, now what do I do with my life? And so I was really, really frustrated. So I did a lot of lame things, a lot of great things. Um, but then in my late 20s, my career kind of took off, and I got into the world of, of PR, and uh, it was interesting because um, I crossed over and came out here to work for Focus on the Family and lead the PR team. 
And if any of you know Focus on the Family, people generally, um, although this is changing a bit because we've kind of gotten more back to our roots of marriage and parenting, but there was a season there where people really loved us or hated us. So there wasn't a lot of middle ground. Um, and I remember being invited to speak at the national, um, it's called Public, Public Relations Society of America. They meet in Manhattan every year. It's like 5,000 people. And they asked me to lead a workshop. And so I went to this workshop, led it, And this woman came up to me and she's like, when I heard you were from Focus on the Family, I was going to walk out of the room. She said, I am a liberal, Democrat, Jewish, feminist, blah, blah, blah. She started putting all these labels on herself. And I'm just like, I could see this is going to go well. Um, But she said, you know, but I gave you a chance and I'm so glad I did because I have kids and I'm going to go to your website and see what you guys have to offer because you seem like you really care about people and that you're actually like a normal person. Um... (laughs) I had another woman from National Geographic come up to me and say, I thought for sure you would have like a head covering on or like some kind of a... So it was really funny. So um, moved into that space. But then when I was 30 years old, I, I told you guys this a little bit, I was home uh, at my parents' home in Minnesota and my 30th birthday was a super downer. So um, not only was it the day that I really realized I was single and all the implications there, I was like, I am no longer in my 20s. Um, this is not the story I expected. This is not the script I wanted. This is not where I thought I would be. I certainly didn't think I would be celebrating my 30th birthday with my parents in their small town, not to mention that later that day, we had to go to my uncle's funeral. So I can actually say I went to a funeral on my birthday. Um, And then we came back and just had a big barbecue because I think my parents felt so bad that I was at a funeral. They're like, oh, let's act like it's your birthday and super fun now, you know. Um, So the whole day was just bad. Um, And I realized, you know, in in that moment, and I've had to realize that since, that I will never have the story that my friends have. I am never going to be homeschooling a gaggle of kids. I'm not going to be driving a minivan. I'm not going to be out in this story that I thought I would have and I was so presumptive of. Um, And it was shortly after um, I was 30 years old. It was at the end of that year that my dad actually was diagnosed with lymphoma and died of cancer. And um, it was a very, it just kind of like, set me into a tailspin because I was like, well, now I've lost my 20s. I will never be married in my 20s. Now my dad will not be at my wedding because he's gone. And so I was just kind of realizing and having to grieve all of these losses. And it was a very hard time. And I asked myself, I remember asking myself, where did I go wrong? What did I do differently? What is, what is wrong with me? What wrong decisions did I make? What wrong turns did I take? Where did I not listen to God? Where did I miss God's will? How did I not see my calling? And I just started this trajectory of sadness and of self-blaming. And, and uh, you know, when I stopped blaming myself, then I just started blaming other people, I guess. Um, I jokingly tell people that... Uh, Um, when it comes to dating and marriage, I blame my 20s on myself, and then my 30s I blame on men. And then now as I've crossed over into 40, I'm just going to have to start blaming God because who else is there? So um, anyway, but uh, I I really did question God a little bit. And I want to, um, this session, um, May of, of of the sessions, I don't know, the next one too, maybe a little bit, but Um, This is a lot of where I'm living right now, and so I feel like this may, of any of them, turn into like a tear fest, so just bear with me. Um, But I want to actually share with you guys two, a couple stories out of scripture, and I'm just going to gloss over them really fast. Um, But it's two women who also went into tailspins, but with vastly different outcomes, okay? Okay. 
The first one, and if you have, if you have a Bible, you can follow along, but again, I'm going to blaze through this, uh, comes out of 2 Samuel 13, and it's the story of Tamar. If any of you know Tamar, um, Tamar was a, um, a victim of sexual assault, which is very apropos given what's uh, happening in the headlines and whatnot nowadays uh, this, this month. Um, so she dealt with not only the immediate horror of her situation, but lasting consequences that actually affected her very identity. Um, and this is a woman, a daughter of a king, you guys. So this is not like she was set up pretty well, okay? Um, 2 Samuel 13, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 4 and then uh, summarize a little bit and then pick up. Um, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So they come up with this crafty little plan, and it's really not even, um, it's really not even Amnon, it's, it's Jonadab that comes up with this. Okay, well, make up this thing that like you're ill, and you're gonna, she's going to come in and like feed you and help you out and stuff, and then basically, when you have your opportunity, just rape her. And so he does. Um, and what, what's nutty in this story is, um, and it goes through and it walks through that and stuff and just, and how that plays out. Um, and he says, you know, he basically takes hold of her and says, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? All this happens. Amnon immediately hates her and despises her and sends her out. And I think what's especially tragic about this story, other than the incident itself, is the response of folks. So David himself, King, uh, King David, chooses to be very angry about this, but not do anything. So she's left without an advocate. Um, and I mentioned that this is affecting her identity. It's event, uh, affecting the course of her life. Okay, flip over. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit here um, for a moment. In fact, I won't. Uh, I'll, I'll summarize here. Compare that to the story of Ruth. Now, Ruth, okay, how many of you have heard Ruth? Because you know you have. Churches love to throw this in front of singles as some like epic love story, okay? This is not a love story, people. No woman wants to hear about this old guy who kind of Ruth has to go into the threshing floor and put, you know, cover his feet and all this stuff. It's just kind of creepy, okay? So it's not really that much of an epic romance. Um, I don't like to think of it uh, that way. Um, it's actually a terrible, a terrible story. Ruth is, um, her, hu her husband is dead. His brother is dead. Her father-in-law is dead. We know Naomi comes into play here too. There are three widows who are left alone in this story. Um, she can stay where she is with her people in Moab, or she can go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, which is an extremely impractical decision. Not only was Ruth a widow, which puts her um, down on the ladder in society, but she is from Moab, which is like the lowest of the low, despised people. 
Um, then she's hanging out with Naomi, which is super lame. And Naomi is asking to be called Mara, which means bitter. So she's a big downer. Um, <laughs> the other sister-in-law decides, I'm going to put my eggs in this basket and just stay with my people. She, Ruth is giving up practically and, and really realistically speaking every chance of remarriage because she's going to go to a people that are not her own. Um, and she is a widow, but she is choosing to go with Naomi. Now, a lot of people like to say she goes to Na- with Naomi because she just thinks, you know, she feels sorry for Naomi or she's like, she's my mother-in-law, I should hang with her, I don't want her to go alone. But the fact is, Ruth goes with Naomi because she is going with God. Ruth has already made the decision to put all of her hope in the God of the Israelites, in the God of Naomi. And it's evident through scripture that this is most likely because she has already done that. So she's not standing on the road saying, well, I guess I'll just choose this God. No, she's made some big decisions already that have led up to, if I'm going to go for a sure bet, it's not necessarily marriage, it's not the Israelites, it's not Naomi, it's this God of the Israelites, um, and I need to put, put my faith in him. And so she does. Back to Tamar. Absalom does nothing for two years. Um, he's just super mad. Uh, David doesn't do anything. He just tells Tamar to be quiet. Um, David does nothing except be furious, and yet here he was king with the resources and the ability to do whatever he wants to meet justice out on this. So she was without justice and without an advocate. Absalom goes ahead and kills Amnon. Um, So again, you know, bloodshed, whatever. Uh, It's a little too too little, too late. Um, David mourns Amnon and then Absalom. So there's open mourning, there's grief over his sons, Tamar, Um, is just left. And where and how was she ever grieved for? She wasn't. She lived desolate in her father's house, scripture says. She had no future, no family of her own. I mean, imagine her life 30 or 40 years later and the toll that it had taken on her. Because she had no, there was no redemptive element to her story of how this story plays out. The last thing that's said about her is she lived in her father's house as a desolate woman. And this was a woman who had the robes on of royalty, who had the robes signifying her virginity, and nothing was done to reconcile that or give recompense for it. Back to Ruth. So she has the chance of remarriage with her own people. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She had made Naomi's God her God. And she trusts, and this is what I think is so great about this. So she's going to go off to this land that she does not know, but she trusts this God of Naomi and of her people enough for him to be able um, in her story to turn things around, even though she has no idea how. So she's willing, she's going to project a trust on something that she knows logistically should not even realistically play out but she's going to be willing uh, to trust and to trust this God. So I want to say in this, just in talking about stories in general, not even necessarily dating, um, you have a past that may be littered with regrets. You may have been victimized. Um, You possibly inherited a bad story from your parents, or maybe you have a bad relationship with your family even now. Um, You may have a a truckload of stuff that you just brought on yourself, quite frankly, Um, you know, and you're wading through that now and you're you're feeling the ramifications of that. Um, Maybe your life took you somewhere you didn't want it to go and maybe you feel directionless or just plain scared even with where you go from here. 
I wanna just briefly give you three, uh, what I believe are three keys to trusting God with the unknown in a situation like that. And the first is that remember that you are not alone in this. I, you know, everyone trusts God with something. One of the biggest questions I get is how in the world do you trust God with your singleness? How do you trust? How do you still believe that God has good things for you? And I say, you know what? If I weren't trusting him with singleness, I'd be trusting him with something else. Because um, we're all called to trust God with something. Some of us, multiple things at once. Um, it's a very, um, you know, I, I could say there are so many single adults I know who are like, if I just got married, if I just got married, then my life would start, or then the pieces would fall together, or then I could start serving the Lord, or I could really be effective. Um, and I'm like, you know what? You can get married. And you may struggle with a terrible marriage, or you may struggle with infertility, or financial problems, or a health crisis, or a rebellious teen down the road. You don't know what God is going to call you to trust him with, and it may be very, very hard stuff, because the one thing we're guaranteed in scripture is that in this world, we will have tribulation. We will all go through hard, hard stuff. Um, so in light of that, it's like comparison is just crazy making. I mean, if you're looking at someone else's story like it's the one you want, all you're going to do is waste a significant amount of time wishing for a story that may not ever be yours. Um, and you're missing out on the things that God has for you right now. My latest fear right now is who's going to take care of me because I'm taking care of my mom. My mom has six kids. So you would think, oh, she's locked in. You know, she's got these kids. They're going to take care of her. Um, but I think to myself, even with a mom who has kids, and we have at different stages, you know, looked out for her. At this point, I'm her, you know, advocate. I'm her um, power of attorney. I'm her medical proxy. I set up all her appointments. I make her meals. I care for her. I do her doctor's appointments. And it's easy for me to think, well, who's going to do that for me? Because I'm single, and as I get older, am I going to be a ward of the state? Am I going to be sitting somewhere in a nursing home just because no one knows what else to do with me? And it's very easy for me to get wrapped up in fear related to that because I can project the worst case scenario out and out and out, chapter after chapter. And I have to realize that God does not want me to operate under that spirit of fear. God doesn't, you know, my, my precious friend, my roommate, Juliana, uh, first of all, she said, uh, when I told her this, you know, I'm like looking her in the eyes, like all earnest about it. And she's like, well, Lisa, first of all, you don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, how's that encouraging? Um, <laughs> So, but she's very tall like it is. So I appreciate her. She's like, you don't know if you'll be alive tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. And then she said, and you don't even know that God isn't working in the hearts right now or will in the future of some young couple in your church who wants to adopt you as a little old lady and be your advocate and care for you. Um, and it just so, so helped me to look at that in a different frame of light. And to realize that, um, in fact, there's a, in my mom's hometown, there's this precious woman, Esther. She just turned 96, I want to say. Um, she is single and has been single her whole life. And um, she has lived in the same farmhouse in northern Minnesota her entire life. And she is now very frail and in a wheelchair. Got to the point where she had to move out of her uh, farmhouse and she's been in and out of a couple nursing homes. So she cared for, as all her family members, both her parents and her siblings died, they came home to die, and she cared for them. And, oh, this is where I start, getting, I start crying. So Esther cared for all these people, and I just thought to myself, oh, thank you. Here we go. No one else gets any, because I'm going to need all these. Um, and here I am, like, thinking to myself, what, what will God have for Esther? How will he care for Esther? 
And there is a young couple in her church. They are no, I am not kidding. They're like 27 years old and they have like three little kids that have built an addition on their house. They bought a van that will accommodate her wheelchair and they have taken her in and they have given her a home when no one else would. And they don't even know Esther that well. They just know that she's in her church, but God called them to that. And that's the kind of God we have who scripts out stories for us that go way beyond our imagination and what we can script for ourselves. So remember that he is a good, good God and he has good things for us. Um, The second thing I want everyone to do um, in trusting God with the unknown is to keep moving. We can't be paralyzed by the the past. You can't say you're a has-been. You can't say you're broken or you're damaged goods. You can't second and third guess God. Um, You know, don't keep moving. Don't put out fleece after fleece. Don't be like, well, God, I don't, you know, stop testing God. Trust him that he's got good things. He wants, you know, just, just move ahead. I remember my mom telling me about her call to missions. And uh, she said she was told so often, um, uh, she actually felt called to take on uh, this woman's position who was rejected by the mission board because of a heart condition. And she went and her mom was all up in arms because her mom didn't want to let her go. And my mom was going to go to the Philippines. And uh, I remember her telling a younger missionary candidate years later about her own story. And the missionary, uh, this young woman was like, well, I don't know. I feel like I should just stay until I know God's calling me to go. I want to just stay here until I know he's calling me to go. And mom said, why don't you go and wait for him to call you to stay? And it was just an interesting, and, and that woman went and she's been on the mission field now for like 25 years. And, uh, you know, God can keep you where he wants you to stay if he needs you to stay somewhere. And he can move you if he wants you to move. But you got to be open to it. You got to hold uh, that with open hands. Um, Corey Tenboom is famously known for, being, for saying, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Um, the future may be unknown, our circumstances are unknown, but God's not, and he's well ahead of us on the journey. Um, likewise, these years are not a waiting room for what's to come. Uh, I, I have said often, singleness is not a waiting room for marriage. It is not a, a holding bay for something that's better to come. You're going to trade a lot of hard stuff in singleness for a lot of hard stuff in marriage. (laughs) You are walking out two different stories. You will see the difference between the two, and God will use both of those seasons in your life. But don't think that the grass is greener. Don't think that, you know, oh, I'm going to have this awesome experience, or I'm going to have this awesome story as a result of that. Um, God has awesomeness for you on both sides of that uh, that fence. Uh, This is a season for you to thrive right now and to contribute right where you are, um, to be about who you're about. Start with, if you have not done, uh, if you've not walked through those six markers of maturity, start working on them. Pick a couple of them that you know you probably need to grow in and get some friends alongside you who are going to help you uh, down that path. Um, you know, again, it's, it's being faithful in the small things. I shared that story of, of Rick Warren and um, this idea that, you know, we say we want to do big things for God and yet, you know, we're binge watching The Walking Dead or whatever and, and just feeling like, oh, I'm just waiting for God to like put this call on my life. And it's like, no, go out and get it. Ask what God's asking you to do. Do the next thing. Um, Elizabeth Elliot says, what it, you know, what is the will of God? It's to do the next thing in front of you. What's that step that's right in front of you? Don't look three years out into the future. Um, and then uh, third is um, 
to realize that God has got this, to remember him uh, as you trust him, one of the keys to trusting God. Remember that God's got this. He is intimately involved in your life um, and he knows things that you don't. I love John 15. John 15 for me is a script of how I have to walk out my Christian life. It's a story of the vine abiding in the vine. I have spent, as an overachiever, so much of my life trying to figure out what I am supposed to be doing for God, how I'm supposed to be acting the right way, how I'm supposed to be making the right decisions. And God is like, why don't you just abide in me and the tighter you are hanging on to me, because we all know the application of that scripture is that the vine does nothing on its own. All it is, is it's stuck into the main, or I should say the branch doesn't do anything on its own. It's plugged into the vine. And through that, and you can use the application with like the fruit trees as well. You've heard that too. You know, you don't just like create apples. Apples are a byproduct of a healthy tree. So you don't just, we don't take a bunch of apples and tape them to trees and say that they're healthy trees. No, you have to actually be abiding in the source of life and nutrients and um, the life-giving source of Jesus Christ in order to abide. And as we remind that, as we do that, as we abide and then step out in belief, asking for wisdom and not doubting, James 1.6, don't go around doubting, don't say that you believe one thing and your life reflects the other, um, we will realize that God is working uh, even behind the scenes. And uh, it was a, um, I'm gonna ask, actually, Erica, are you there? Can you grab my, I have a bracelet in that bag back behind there, I forgot to bring that up here. And actually, if you can give me Lori's book too, I forgot that. Um, I, two years ago, I wanna say, went and spoke in Hong Kong at a singles conference. Um, Super cool, hated the flight. Anyway, um, but really neat. But um, when I was there, one of the women there, so, This was a church that had like, oh, thank you so much. Um, Like 80% of their people have gone to Ivy League schools. Because if you talk about like overachievers, like they made me look like some kind of total flake, you know, these these young adults. Um, But there was a woman there who she and her husband, he owns a factory in China that manufactures couture purses. So, um, you know, Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, all of that. And she takes the scrap leather, so she cannot even wear these purses or use them because they're so like under lock and key until the designs come out and all this stuff. But she has, I guess, whatever knockoffs or whatever. But she takes the extra leather from these purses and makes um, bracelets out of them. And she um, embosses inside the bracelet scripture verses and gives them to friends, give them to women. So at this women's event I spoke at, she gave everyone one of these bracelets. And she had asked me ahead of time, um, what one of my favorite verses was. And for those of you that I've signed your book, I put this verse in your book, and it's Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen, which is when the psalmist is recounting the goodness of God to the Israelites. And he recalls their journey through the Red Sea. And he talks about, you know, how the Egyptians were following them and all this stuff and all the turmoil and whatever. And he said, your way was through the mighty waters, though your footprints were unseen. And for me, that's such a powerful reminder of, because we know the end of the story. We know that they made it through and the Egyptians were killed and all this other stuff. And of course, then they got all crazy and chose to still doubt God, whatever. I would never do that. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it's such a powerful reminder to me that God is at work. He's, he's doing stuff. He has been doing stuff. He is still doing stuff. He will continue to do stuff. His footprints may be unseen. I may not be able to trace exactly where he's going with this. And it may look totally ridiculous to me right now, but his way is through 
the very, very mighty water. And so um, she actually uh, gave me this cuff bracelet and put that um, inside there. And so I, I enjoy uh, wearing this bracelet. It's a great reminder to me of the goodness of God. Um, so again, I mean, those are, those are just three of the keys that I think um, we have to remember as we're trusting God with a future, uh, or even with a present for that matter, that we're unsure of. Um, psalm 136, for those of you that know Psalm 136, is that psalm that you hate doing a responsive reading to in church because it's like a million verses and everyone ends with, but his love endures forever. Um, but it is a great reminder of, because there's a lot of positive things throughout that psalm. Like I said, it's a, very, it's a very long one. There's a lot of positive things. You know, we worship God in his sanctuary. We praise him for his mighty deeds. We pray, and then it walks through a whole section of really hard stuff. But his love endures forever. But his love, that's the part that I like to read because it kind of reminds me of my own life. Um, but it is a, it's a great psalm because it is such a stark picture of what it looks like to have circumstances delivered to you or have situations in life that you are in, but they're juxtaposed against the unchangeable nature of God. And the fact is that God's love does endure forever. So I'd asked you at the front end of this to write down four variables in your life. I did as well. I want you to yourself to read those variables one by one in your head. And after that you say, but his love endures forever. So for me, um, I didn't share uh, this, I don't think at this point, but when I was uh, around the time my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which when I got my diagnosis, the doctor said, Lisa, you have rheumatoid arthritis. There is no cure for it. We are not close to a cure. And many people die early of this disease. I'm not even kidding. That is what he said. And the only reason I kept him as a doctor is that he's actually good. Um, but his bedside manner is horrible. Um, and, but I remember going to work and just going into a bathroom stall and bursting into tears. Um, so one of mine that I put down is my rheumatoid arthritis may not be healed this side of heaven, but his love endures forever. I may never get married, who wrote that one down, but his love endures forever. Um, God... The great news about God's love is that he cannot make a decision about me or about my circumstances outside of his outrageous love for me. That is a, that is a guarantee that you can take to the bank. The words unfailing love are mentioned 30 to, 32 times in scripture and never once is it attributed to humans. It is always the love of God that is unfailing. Even in some of the greatest you know, prophets, the greatest... Never did they have unfailing love. Only God himself has unfailing love to us. Um, and we can take that to the bank. Um, is there anyone here? Um, sorry, but sometimes I just ask people to share. Uh, is there anyone here that wants to share their, one of their little phrases and tack on, but his love endures forever? I think it would be great for us to hear from a couple other folks. What'd you put? I already took the marriage one, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a good one. Anyone else? Not knowing the direction of my life. Mm-hmm. Very good. Any others? Yeah. Fear that my work has no meaning, mm. but it's love 
Mm-hmm. Very true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah. Does loneliness a big theme? Big theme. Um, two others that I put: my mom continues to decline, but his love endures forever. And my family will disappoint me, but his love endures forever. Walked through a couple rough seasons now. Am walking through a rough season with them. Um, I want to read for you. This is a friend of mine. Um, it's fun to host a show because you make a lot of really cool f- friends. Um, but she's actually a legit friend. She's a friend beyond just a show friend. Um, she wrote a book that came out recently called When Changing Nothing Changes Everything. I love it when I can, selling other people's books. I actually endorse this book, so I truly do believe um, this is, a, this is a, apart from singleness or whatever, this is just a great book. If you feel you're in a spot where um, you have not been delivered what you'd hope to be delivered, this is a great book. When Changing Nothing Changes Everything by my friend Lori Pollitt Short. She got married for the first time at 49. Um, and she was a long time in the 80s, I want to say, especially a youth, a national youth speaker. She was on tours and all kinds of stuff. She's from Santa Barbara, which who doesn't want to marry someone from Santa Barbara? Um, so it just seems like everything should have worked out for her, and it didn't. And so she opens up her book, and I knew when I read this section of it, I was like, oh, that's legit. I'm going to be using this in my, in my talks. Uh, she talks about sharing, um, she was speaking at her church And she said, um, people were still getting to know me, so I decided to start by sharing a typical scene from my life. Here's how I began. I got up this morning in my apartment, and I was all alone. I have no husband, so there are no kids. The owner recently put a for sale sign in the front yard, so I probably won't be able to stay in my place much longer. The rent will go up, and I'll have to find something else. Dating at my age is not easy, because everyone you meet has baggage. It's just a matter of choosing what luggage you can live with. Whether it's a divorce, shared kids, or the reasons that accompany prolonged singleness, it's been impossible to find anyone I'm interested in. I love it here, but working at a church is one of the hardest jobs a single person can have. You feel your singleness everywhere you go. I paused, and an awkward silence fell across the crowd, not surprisingly. Noticing the pastor staring at me with a look of wonderment, not the good kind, I took a deep breath and started again. I got up this morning, and I had the whole place to myself. It was quiet, and I could do whatever I wanted. The for sale sign is still in front of my place, so I'll be able to live there another month. If it sells, there's a chance I might find something even better. Dating is much easier at my age because you know yourself more. You're better equipped to make a good choice. You also have a lot more grace for the people you date because you realize that circumstances make life complicated. And my job? Working at a church is such a gift. What a blessing to have an extended family in the place where you work when there isn't one at home. And she says, I should have stopped right there because this is the only part of my talk that people remembered. (laughs) And I love her opening up with that story because it's such an example of how by reframing our circumstances through the lens of scripture, God's love for us, a biblical worldview, just the, the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, we really can live out a different story and a different perspective in that. 
Um, I think I used this quote in my book. Elizabeth Elliot has long been a favorite of mine. I was very sad that I didn't get to interview her on my show before she died. Um, she had a very severe dementia as well um, for many years. Um, but she's known for saying, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And so it's so easy for us to want to change our circumstances. And if I just had that or this or just had that or just had this relationship or just had this different job or just had a better family or more supportive friends, my life would be so much better. But in Christ, we really have everything that we need. And we know scripture says, you have been given everything you need for life and godliness we have the opportunity, as I said earlier, to love lavishly, to live lavishly, and hopefully because of what we have in Christ out of the surplus of his goodness to us. Um, I'm gonna just close this session, but Amy Carmichael, another person, she was single, uh, rock star of the Christian faith, went over to India, started multiple orphanages despite terrible personal persecution and hardship and her own circumstances and health. Um, she wrote a poem called One Step, And I I love this poem, and it says, Child of my love, fear not the unknown morrow, dread not the new demand life makes of thee. Thy ignorance doth hold no cause for sorrow, for what thou knowest not is known to me. One step thou seest, then go forward boldly. One step is far enough for faith to see. Take that, and thy next duty shall be told thee, for step by step thy Lord is leading thee. So I want to just encourage you guys with that, in trusting God with an unexpected story, remembering that it may be unexpected to you, it's not at all unexpected to him, but go forward boldly with faith and with courage, and you'll see God do big things. Thanks. Thanks.